Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I think of the, the hubris. It must take to yank a soul out of non-existence into this meat. The great boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, apparently the open science movement is funded entirely by billionaire pedophiles. Do you, <laughs> do you still support the pre-registration of research? <laughs> if I pre-register, the pedophiles have won. Every time you pre-register, you're diddling a child. <laughs> I think pre- now I don't. Now I'm starting to wonder what they mean by pre-registration. <laughs> I don't even get that joke. It's just funny. I know. I don't totally get it either. <laughs> uh, man, I wasn't expecting you to talk about this Twitter drama. Um, I, you know, capitalism, love it or leave it. <laughs> I mean, money's going to come from somewhere that it came from a centralized, uh, that it comes from like a single person versus it coming from a bunch of people, I, I guess matters if somebody's controlling it. But like, I've personally have recently released a paper with all of my pre-registration, open data, all of those analyses there, and I didn't get pressure once from a pedophile. Uh, <laughs> I didn't feel anything. You have to, you had to kind of look the other way, right? <laughs> I mean, you're connected with Jeffrey Epstein. You've been at a number of the same events. Luckily in no pictures, man, <laughs> you know? But nobody cares enough about me to, to like rally accusations, but... <laughs> we should clarify that Although it is funded, the open science movement, by, um, I don't know if it's a billionaire or somebody who's very wealthy, but uh, <laughs> the pedophile thing, I think, is me running together a couple different things on my Twitter. <laughs> That's right. It's just that billionaire is now so frequently followed by a pedophile <laughs> that like a machine learning algorithm that scours Twitter yeah. would just assume that these were very closely related. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, do you want to talk briefly about that? There was this blog post, which I would love to talk about, but you probably don't want to. This very critical review, sort of meta review of research in the social sciences, how, how much of it fails to replicate, and all sorts of other problems. And then Tej Rai, who is... Has he been on the podcast? No. No, no. We talked about his, his, his paper with uh, Alan Fisk. Right. And I, uh, and I have interviewed him and Alan Fisk um, for the Very Bad Wizard book. But yeah. But anyway, he said, note that this movement and the, the, the funder of the person who wrote that blog post is, um, he's a billionaire. 
yeah. strongly implying yeah. that he was also a pedophile. But <laughs> just, just conceptually yeah. true. It's, just, <laughs> it's a thick concept, billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> it's with two C's, as we know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah no, I, you know, like, and Tej got to, took to Twitter and received a lot of pushback about this because, you know, leaving it as, remember, it's funded by billionaire, is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that something less than above board is going on. And Brian Nosek, who, you know, I know both Tej and Brian, I'm closer to Brian, but uh, took to Twitter to defend himself. And then there was a back and forth. And it just leaves an, a bad taste in my mouth because the, there's there, there are other things to be fighting about. Um, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need a billionaire to fund the, the Center for Open Science, I guess. But there's also, as many people point out, there's tons of open science reform that has nothing to do with the Center for Open Science. And if it's funded by a billionaire... Um, and they're being transparent about it. I don't, I don't see the problem. I mean, billionaires should be giving away their money too. I think that the, the thing that Tage had to deal with is the question about whether, and I don't know what the answer to this is, whether as an editor of, of what is essentially the premier journal in all, across all sciences, whether as the a social science editor there, um, he should be expressing opinions like this on Twitter. Right. And some people were like, well, uh, now I know I don't want to submit to science if, if that's what he thinks. Um, and, and I have mixed feelings about that. I, I, but I do feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't submit something really open-y to science. I just don't get why Tej took to Twitter in the first place to do that. Why did he feel the need? He seemed to make it about race and... Uh, and prejudice and having read the blog post, I mean, there was nothing about that in there. Yeah, I, I think Tage was probably just sitting on some sentiments that some people have expressed that they're they sometimes disparagingly refer to this as broken science <laughs> because <laughs> because it is dominated by this sort of like this, uh, you know, some assertive, sometimes aggressive male white personality terrorists. What are they called? Methodological terrorists. And I guess it was just wrapped into some sentiment about that. But that's not, we're, that's not what we're going to talk about. That's not what we're talking about today. We are going to talk about something that I, I'm kind of in, interested in. We might disagree about, but um, I don't know. It seems like over the last few years and, and, and over the last few months, there have been all these articles that have pointed to the existence of either UFOs that, or, you know, videos of UFOs that are moving in a way that seems impossible based on what we know about aircraft motion. And, and then now that there's definitely life, probably intelligent life on Venus, um, the latest um, from the clouds. And it's like, I don't get why nobody is talking about this and why people why this isn't exciting the imaginations of people in the way that it seems like so much other bullshit is like <laughs> this is like we're talking about aliens these are fucking aliens and they're like and it's not even like venus is just in our solar system that's i see <laughs> well, venus. Right, i see so. venus every every night and i live in houston <laughs> i wave mm -hmm. um uh I think that that what we'll disagree about is that those two stories that the the UFOs that the Pentagon released videos of and that the Venus thing have anything to do with each other, um, except for in the loosest loosest sense that both would be about extraterrestrial life. Um, I agree that the Venus, UFOs probably didn't come from Venus. They probably came from <laughs> like Mars they or would, Saturn. They would know to be more careful. The <laughs> Venus aliens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> these are these are uh, other these these are aliens from another quadrant who are. <laughs> clearly didn't read the signposts um i i am like actually 
not because of aliens, but super excited about the Venus thing because at best it's evidence of life. So they found an element, uh, they found a, a phosphine, a chemical that, that might be a biosignature. At best, it's evidence that there could be life on Venus. And at worst, it's just, or I guess at, at worst isn't the right word, but, but at the very least, it's just like a mystery how that could occur chemically. And those things are actually exciting to me. And I'll, I'll be honest, like anything that takes my attention away from this particular planet right now is yeah. well, very welcome. <laughs> so I'm all for talking about UFOs too. Why, why do you think, given all the various conspiracies that are out there right now, why, why does this one <laughs> seem neglected? Well, the UFO thing is an interesting one because from, uh, from the moment that we had ubiquitous cameras on our phone, the rate of UFO sightings dropped precipitously. So, right. so it says something about the the nature of the claims before. Um, well, well, they're probably not flying in our now that they know that we can film them. You know, they can. They actually have like uh, cell phone detecting. Yeah, it's like the, <laughs> it's like the police not wanting to have the the, the cams. You know. <laughs> I used to tell my daughter when she was very small that I could fly, except for not when anyone was looking. Right. was <laughs> the, the ultimate argument. Um, but some people, yeah, I don't know why the UFO stuff is. So, so you were talking right before we recorded about these videos. And these videos are crazy because just like what I said with Venus in a very similar way, like even if they're not UFOs, they're weird. Like I don't know what they are. Um, and, and you would think that instead of talking about billionaire diddlers, we, we could be talking about, <laughs> about the cover up for the UFOs. This, and then there is this. So this was from July 24th, the Pent, and this is in New York magazine. The Pentagon has reportedly found off world vehicles not made on this earth. And they were <laughs> citing like a New York Times. I don't know this. What? Yeah. Apparently I like I, I looked, I was looking back in my timeline and realized that I'd essentially <laughs> done the same tweet twice like a few months apart uh with this one i was like why why is this not all anyone's talking about was the first one and then i did a variation of that just recently but i believe it i'm like wait a like this is just this thing that was like in between like 12 t trump stories that nobody remembers and you know same with the venus thing it got a little more play but not really the venus thing is has been like i've read quite a lot about it but you know, from like the, the, the science communication people and maybe I follow some astrophysicists and that's exciting. Like I, I feel that one, I feel like everybody, it can't be a, a conspiracy theory. There's all, all kinds of scientists agree that something funny is going on in Venus. I'm more perplexed at what's going on with this Pentagon videos. Like, and yeah. why, why don't we just have a clear answer? Cause I'll be honest. I don't believe that these are fucking UFOs. I, but why don't we have a clear answer? Like, why don't we have I don't know. somebody coming out and saying, like, right. no, this is just a weird reflection or a weird computer glitch. Like, you would think that that would be an easy thing. And why are they not even feeling the <laughs> need to do that? So, wait, let's put our cards on the table. You don't believe those are UFOs? A hundred percent, no. And do you, what do you think about just the odds of alien life that is in some way aware of us? Uh, I believe that there is a high certainty that there is alien life. Um, I believe that there's a low probability that we've been able to uh, communicate with any of them or that, or that given the astronomical distances that we would ever have a shot at physically reaching, reaching them. Like that, this space is big. 
So I don't think that any of this stuff is evidence of visitations. And I think that just the universe is so vast that that even the little signals that we're sending out, you know, with our little gold record that, with Carl Sagan's voice and all that, like the chances are so low, you know. But what are the odds that that they're aware of our existence, whether we ever come into contact with them or not? Yeah, I, 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 I would think very low. I would think very low. I think that catching the signal... The, the signal that there is life on our planet would be, would be hard. But, you know, there's a lot of really cool uh, mathematical attempts at coming up with the pro- these probabilities. Right. And what's really crazy is that depending on the assumptions, it's either uh, like One. really certain or like not at all. <laughs> it's, it's so confusing to me. Well, it reminds me of those the Nick Bostrom uh, argument yeah. about it all depends on your assumptions, but like the argument that we are part of a simulation. It's like if you take certain assumptions, then the probability approaches one, but it's those assumptions themselves, given our epistemic situation, that we can't take for granted at all. Yeah. Um, there is this Enrico Fermi, who is the physicist who we, we, talk about sometimes in in the context of alien life with Fermi's paradox, like why hasn't anybody reached out to us? He would have this this method of estimating uh, these kinds of calculations where he he would uh, assume that the errors, the various errors that you make in all of the basic assumptions, the chances that you make an error in one direction versus another direction would wash out. And so he could arrive at pretty accurate estimates of these problems with back-of-the-envelope calculations. Um, and that's actually fascinating to me, how, how we come up with these estimates. But, but I don't know. Yeah, so... Space is, yeah, space is fucking big. And, and we don't know... So, well, there's so much that we don't know about, yeah, like you say, what to put into the estimates. Yeah. So I feel like I'm more of a believer than you. I'm more the Mulder to your scully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it goes along with the fact that I am rational right. and, and you're, <laughs> I know it's all anecdotal and then, but now you have these anecdotal reports plus, uh, and there are tons of them. And, you know, a lot of people I respect have at least either claimed to have, have some sort of very strange encounter or like talk to people who they find credible and then you combine that with the little bits of hard physical evidence that we get um, and the fact that, you know, definitely something's going on in Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> I think we can easily discount every claim that there's been an encounter and we can discount 99% of any physical evidence that people have claimed is for UFO. And what we're left with is just a bunch of people really trying hard to find something that doesn't exist. That's my take. Do you think that it's my just hot, hot take. like there's something about our culture right now that this isn't, there's certainly more evidence for this than a lot of the other, you know, than like QAnon stuff. Is it just like the cultural moment for this being the conspiracy has passed? It's an interesting question because I think that conspiracy theories too, and we're like, we should do, we're going to yeah. do an episode, I think on conspiracy theories. But I think conspiracy theories, one of the things that they really need is a motivated reason to believe them. Yeah, And I'm not sure what people's motivation to believe in extraterrestrial life would be or that the government is, is covering that up. Like, like the reason I think things like QAnon come, are, are so powerful is, is because it fits well with a narrative that people really want to believe. And maybe we used to want to believe in, in, in UFOs, mm-hmm. but now we just want to believe that like the opposite political party is evil. Because it has a yeah. lot of the same 
elements, right? Like, uh, it, I guess it was more government focused with the UFOs rather than yeah. like billionaires and shady. And it's like, yeah, it's less point. moralistic too. It's unclear like who the bad guy is if the government, right. you know, if it's just the government covering stuff up. Yeah, um, maybe for our does, benefit, maybe not. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, it does say something about the state of affairs that like we're not we're. we're <laughs> We can't even enjoy old-timey conspiracy theories. Yeah. We can't even have the good, fun conspiracies. It has to be like Hillary Clinton is like kidnapping children in a pizza place. Yeah, like why does it have to be about kids? But yeah, just talk. I bet you if you could put, if you added there's extraterrestrial life and they're molesting children, then you could get a whole whole bunch of people. I mean, they were molesting people, right? The whole anal probe thing. So it it had at least a molestation, uh, but they were... It was classier times then. It was adults. Yeah. It was usually adults. Yeah, it was and adults. it was usually adults from very poor parts of town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, I don't know. We should say what we're doing, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, have, oh, uh, we have a special guest, Yoel Imbar, uh, frequent guest to discuss uh, the most recent Charlie Kaufman movie on Netflix called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I think it was a great discussion. Yeah, we had a really nice discussion with Yoel. This was before I learned that he was... Uh, a part of the billionaire open science well, kind of I mean, ring. <laughs> what, what did you think? I, yeah. I, I, I blame you. <laughs> I'm naive. I know. I'm naive. It's probably willful <laughs> ignorance in some ways because he's such a nice guy. He is, you, but that's how they get you. <laughs> <laughs> they send out people. He's, Yoel basically has candy and he's in right. an unmarked white van and he's just calling you, calling your name. <laughs> he's grooming me, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry so what were you gonna say about uh the, i don't remember now we should do a conspiracy uh, uh yeah there's actually yeah it's there's some cool research on it but just as a topic i love it you know for a long time when i was in in college i really loved reading shit about secret societies i don't know that i ever believed too much of it but i wanted to man like i thought it was so cool. you want to believe <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like Illuminati stuff. That's also stuff yeah. that I really kind of, I, I come very close to just outright endorsing or believing. <laughs> I, I, I think I had this moment of of disillusionment when I realized how bad we as human beings are organizationally, like bureaucratically, and like two people know something, it's no longer a secret. That the thought that there could be people people keeping such important secrets and that there would be that many people is just completely, uh, I just, there's not a shot that I'll believe it. That's exactly what they want you to think. (laughs) But still, you would think that it would leak out more than it did, more than it does. But you know, we have things like Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Arguably is great. Casting a light on certain practices. Um, uh, you know that that there is cover up in Hollywood. This is the problem with the best conspiracy theories. Um, they're hard to shake because you don't one this this like billionaire pedophile rings. You don't want to sound like you're denying that there is child abuse, right? So so or even like child sex trafficking because there is or child sex trafficking and yeah and there is and there's I think plenty of evidence that that uh, you know Hollywood has had a prob- quite a problem with this sort of stuff. It's the levels of organization that are more implausible to me than the actual abuse or damage that people have done. I, I believe that people would be covering up for others, but that it would be so organized seems seems 
Yeah. It's sad to say that the organization is the implausible part. <laughs> <laughs> the bureaucracy, like you just don't buy <laughs> yeah. it. Plus, don't you think that that we could have been tapped for Illuminati membership by now? Like, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, you're a Jew. You're white. I know. <laughs> Why haven't the Rothschilds contacted me yet? It's, you know, it's a little insulting, frankly. I would say no. I would like to make that clear at the outset, but I'd like to be asked. That's all. I know. It's rude is what it is. <laughs> it's sort of like the Harper's letter, you know? <laughs> You wish you could have had a chance to sign it. To say no yeah. to sign it. To say no to sign it. You know, so I definitely wouldn't have signed it. It's true. Nobody's asked me. <laughs> so. All right. Well, now that we've established that the Illuminati is uh, hiring aliens to molest children funded by billionaires. And somehow the open science movement and <laughs> yeah, right, right. Brian Nozick's and the- Amin Vizier's. <laughs> And I love those people. It's I'm all- so supportive of what they're doing too. Yeah, no, me too. Um, but but it did remind me of, of you saying that. I just pictured like right now. I can see your office for for our listeners, um, and I just wish that you had uh, like a little board up there with red yarn connecting pictures of Samin Vizier and Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so ridiculous about the broken science. Or maybe it's just me. Because, but the people I know don't tend to be white men who are. Yeah. Or no. Yeah. Yeah. It's also just a conflation. I get it. I mean, but it's a conflation of like what, you know, they're always going to be jerks associated with any movement. And so I'm not saying Talia Coney's a jerk. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, that's too far. Yeah. Like the board. Uh, Samin Vizier. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, like it'll just be a picture of an alien and then <laughs> Jeffrey that, one, that one Bigfoot pose you know where he's like has one hand up at the front and, the other one, like, <laughs> <laughs> to, and then to uh, Yoel and then, and, then, and then to like the bizarre chemistry that would produce phosphine in an environment like Venus yeah <laughs> uh, we've I do think there's out. also like conspiratorial elements to just what made the open science movement necessary in the first place. Just, I think somebody could do like an expose movie mini series <laughs> just about like how the we had the secret P hack handshake back in the day when <laughs> exactly. I was in grad school. <laughs> exactly. you, you shook someone's hand and you diddled your middle finger in, in into the handshake. And that's when they knew, Ooh, he collected more measures than he reported. <laughs> And you were at least invited to that one. I was part of it. I was vi- invited to the conspiracy where we're supposed to care about zombies and like <laughs> fake barns. Yeah. But that's important. No, no. Stay with me. <laughs> conceivability. We're going to sell it as conceivability. Right. We're going to say, and I know this sounds insane. We're going to say that conceivability <laughs> implies possibility. <laughs> And you're going to go along with it unless that pretty young wife of yours. <laughs> oh, God. I'm so glad we got it all figured out. It took us eight years. It did. <laughs> now I'm sure, like, this will never reach air. But uh, at least we try. That's right. If I am dead by the time this is aired, just know that we were this close, this close. Yeah. To shining a light on. It's all connected. Yeah. If, if I, if I kill myself, it won't be by hanging to a doorknob in my house. (laughs) That's right. 
<laughs> well, we'll be right back to talk about Charlie Kaufman's new and really great movie, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? Simply put, BetterHelp is therapy. It's professional counseling that is available to you 24 hours a day from the ease of your own computer, your own phone, by text message, by uh, video, by telephone. BetterHelp is here to help all of those who might not have the time, energy, or money to go seek out a counselor in the real world. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own professional therapist. You can connect in a safe, private online environment in under 24 hours of you signing up, you'll be getting the counseling help that you need. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and they'll give you timely and thoughtful responses. And moreover, if you are not happy with the therapist that you've been assigned uh, by BetterHelp, you can always ask to switch and see somebody else. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if you want to or need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and if you're in need of financial aid, it is available for you. It is uh, available for clients worldwide across a broad range of expertise. So whether you're having stress and anxiety, as I've been having lately, um, if you feel like you're suffering from anger or there's some conflict going in your life with friends or family that is that is really affecting you, even issues such as simple happiness, whether you're living the best life that you can or self-esteem or trouble sleeping, BetterHelp therapists are there and they're experts in whatever area you can think of. Anything you share is confidential because these are professional counselors. Um, again, convenient and affordable. And if you don't believe me, you can check out testimonials posted on their daily site. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. So if you're feeling like this is a mental health emergency, please call a crisis line. Final thing I'll say is BetterHelp is actually looking for recruiting additional counselors across all 50 states because of the demand from people like you and me. So if you want or need to uh, get a therapist now and BetterHelp is a service that you're considering, as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash VBW. Join over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. 
this is the time on the podcast where we like to take a moment to thank all the people for all the ways that they reach out to us, whether by email, on Twitter, on Reddit, or uh, not reaching out to us, but reaching out to other people in the community, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we really appreciate it. We especially love the emails that uh, we've been getting recently. It's been so encouraging to hear people from all over the world just uh, either thank us or take issue with something we said. Or, um, it's just cool. Absolutely. Like people who tell us that they, that, that uh, I really like the kind where people tell us that we've helped them make it through a bad stretch of their life. Like that makes me feel like I, uh, I may, maybe I did something meaningful with my time. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I've said this before, but I, I, I feel like podcasts can do that in a way, like especially yeah. um, in a lonely stretch or an anxious stretch of your life. Sometimes podcasts have that power to just make you feel a little less a little more comfortable, a little less lonely, and more relaxed. Anyway, if you would like to reach out to us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can um, tweet at us, at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. Follow us on Instagram. You can join the conversation on the subreddit. You can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That always helps and um, like us on Facebook if I didn't say that already. So thank you all. It's, it's really meaningful to us, and um, yeah. We appreciate it quite a bit. And if you want to help us in more tangible ways, you can uh, find those ways by going to our support page, verybadwizards.com, and just click on the support tab, and you'll find a few ways that you can support us. You can donate to us directly via PayPal, one time or recurring donation. We very much appreciate that. Um, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, we love our Patreon supporters. Uh, and here, I guess, is where we can talk about some of the things that we've, we've been doing. But we just recently uh, released a five-part series on the Brothers Karamazov. And that is available if you download the Himalaya app. So it's, a, it's in collaboration with uh, Himalaya. And you can either buy that a la carte but if you're a Patreon member that is a $5 and up supporter, you'll just get it. So, so for thank you very much to our $5 and up supporters. Um, you, you also you get a nice promo code if you're any level, at any level of support. That's right. At any level, you'll get a, a promo code for, for a free trial that, that lasts longer than, than most people get. Um, and we're proud, we're proud of this one. We, we really put a lot of uh, time and effort into it, and I, and, but also enjoyed it quite a bit, and I think it will be enjoyable. Um, so read the book. Or, or listen to it and maybe it will inspire you to, yeah. to read the book. If you've read um, it and don't have time to reread it, I still think um, you'll get a lot out yeah. of the series. So, yeah. Thank you I so think, much to our I Patreon supporters. And, um, and, and if you have any suggestions for bonus episodes, we're gearing up to do another bonus episode soon, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can also, by the way, get some Very Bad Wizards merchandise you can on that support page there will uh be a link to the very bad wizards uh merchandise store you can get yourself a sweet awesome soft silky soft t-shirt uh with a logo um designed by olga pope thank you and uh, or a sweatshirt or a hoodie um and i have both and the sweatshirt is also by the way just super soft and, and comfortable uh we really love it support us that way but you also get a sweet shirt uh for doing it so thank you, everybody, for all the ways in which you supported us. And now to talk about a very cool and depressing movie. All right.
Um, we are here with special guest Yoel Inbar, whose work portrays interiority. Hey there. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. And what a wonderful introduction. That was exactly yeah. right, Tamler. Thank you. It, it really comes through. His early work was all exterior. But he's, he's really made a change in this second part. Of yes, his... in my more, my mature work, as I as I like to put it. Yeah, he's he's changed his clothes from red to blue, basically. So we're going to talk about. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. Should we just get general like opinions about how much you liked it, what you thought of it first, and then we'll go through it a little bit? It's a very hard film to give a synopsis of or describe. But what did you guys think of it? Just uh, did you like it? Not like it? How did you feel about it? I thought it was incredibly depressing, but <laughs> I, I also really liked it. And I liked it more the more I thought about it. So the evening that I watched it, I was like, I don't really know. And then I had a very depressing night of bad dreams prompted in part by the movie. And then I woke up in the morning. I was like, this movie's brilliant. Yeah, I totally, same thing with me. It, it just got better and better as as the more I thought about it and the more I reflected on it. And you can feel it, just the mood of it long after you've watched it. I just watched it a second time and I have that feeling of kind of depression and anxiety and loneliness right now. <laughs> what do you think, Dave? So I just watched it and finished watching it like a little less than an hour before we started recording. And I'm in what you guys must have felt, which is that in between sort of like I'm, my brain was still processing it. I was reading about it. Uh, well, I'll say this. Charlie Kaufman won't ever really disappoint me. So, so right now it's more like I am trying to figure out what kind of depressed I am after having watched that film, because there is something about these Charlie Kaufman directed movies that that he just has a fucking finger on, on like my just existential despair. And he presses that button so, so well in ways that I hope we'll get into that, that it's, I'm sure that by by the time I'm, I was actually looking forward to talking to you guys about it because I I want to process it w- with you guys um, as I'm thinking about it. But I, I liked it. I liked it. It's but it's it's like a bad dream. I mean, just sort of like Synecdoche was a bad dream. I, I, stressing me out thinking about how you watched it. Did you watch it in good circumstances? Like, oh yeah, I actually had. I was I was drinking coffee, burning incense on okay, my good. big screen TV okay, with headphones on. Good, so good, I, good. I paid attention and I didn't read anything about it beforehand. And I only and I read just in the last half hour. I was reading uh, things that actually really helped my interpretation of it because at the end of the movie, I still don't think I got what had been going on. If if we're using say the book as the source, yeah, I also required an explainer uh, immediately after watching the movie. I like had a vague idea of what might have happened, but like any of the specifics, I, I I had no clue. So I feel like that's uh, kind of essential. For the movie to make any sort of sense and for it to like have its real impact, you kind of, I think, have to understand what was happening. So I'm like you, Yoel, where I had a sense, like I made the connection that you're supposed to make, but without being certain about that connection until maybe the very end. And also without, you know, like without having any of the details, like Dave said, like I, uh, and watching it a second time, you see that the details are just, it's so well constructed. But I will say that even when I was totally confused, which is for the majority of the movie, I liked each individual scene a lot. Like I, it's, it's kind of long, but it's not, it doesn't drag at all somehow. And I don't even understand how it doesn't drag. And it's actually, some scenes are very funny in an absurdist kind of way. And you know, and you get that, ang- just that constant feeling of anxiety and like something's off, you know, in a way that's pretty gripping without even knowing 
how any of this is happening, why it's different time periods and she has different names, the main character, Jesse Buckley, and she has different careers and it's bewildering, but not in a way that was alienating to me. Now, I know some people don't agree with that and, and did feel alienated by it, but I wasn't. I was never there. Yeah, so that's something I hadn't thought about is like the challenge of making a movie where your plan is that the entire time the viewer is going to be kind of confused about what's happening, and yet it still has to be watchable. Like, that's really damn hard, actually. And he gives you nothing. Like, it's like, you're like, can I get some idea of what's going on? And he's like, my offer is this, nothing. <laughs> you, you get shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Get yeah. Fucking <clears throat> I, I agree, Tamar, with what you're saying, that the... the in in some ways, even though I didn't know like the the main the main twist, you know, you get this vague emotional sense that something is off and that these people are somehow related and none of not all of them are real, um, and that there is he gives you enough to know that there's a connection between the janitor and these characters, and it doesn't it doesn't matter so much to me what is the truth of what's going on, like the, the the big picture truth of what's going on, because the scenes themselves are so good at giving me these feelings of, of un, just unsettling feelings that are like, like life is like, I don't know how like it's, it really is like you're waking up from a weird dream. It's all very dreamlike to me. And and there is some, I, this sounds cheesy, but there is some truth to what's going on that doesn't require me to know exactly what was going on. And I think Charlie Kaufman knows exactly what he's doing. And it's less important what like the big twist is. In a way, like Mulholland Drive is also giving you a, f- a feel the whole time, even when you're totally confused. It's still, you're getting this kind of emotional undercurrent that involves you in the story, even if you're not sure what the story is. Yeah, I was thinking of Lynch, and I was going to ask you guys what you think, because I think that one of the big differences is Lynch is is trying, I feel like at least in that movie, he's giving me a plot, and I'm really struggling to figure out what's going on in the plot. And in this case, I don't feel like I'm struggling to figure out the plot so much as I would be in a Lynch. But that other part, that of giving you emotions with these scenes, I think is is spot on. That's right. He's not there. Lynch gives you mysteries. Like that's his, like pretty much all of his movies have a central mystery and there's no real mystery here beyond what the hell is going on. It's just a, it's just a girl <laughs> right. going with her boyfriend right. to meet her boyfriend's parents while she's thinking of breaking up with him, or at least that's how it presents itself. Right. So I do think that uh, Tamler should say what the plot actually was, but the last thing I wanted to say was I'm sad that I didn't get to watch it again before we recorded this. I just didn't have time because I'm excited to see what is it like on the second viewing where, you know, you now you know what to look for, right? And I, I feel like it's going to be this entirely different experience. Totally different. I mean, but not in the feeling of the scenes. There's so many clues that are littered through it. And it actually makes, obviously, a lot more sense. So I I, I, I did notice this the first time, but as an example, you see that the book of Pauline Kael reviews in his room. And then all of a sudden she starts quoting a Pauline Kael review and starts talking like Pauline Kael in the car. And the first time I remember thinking, okay, she's being like some sort of seventies intellectual film critic. Like, and then I was like, oh, Pauline Kael, she's probably doing Pauline Kael right now. But I didn't at that point say, oh, so that means that she's 
not, you know, she's a fabrication or something like that. You know, you just make these connections. And actually, the thing that I, I, I was expecting those little details. What I wasn't expecting is a lot of the way that the jan- the interspersing with of the janitor is done in a way that on the rewatch, you're like, well, why didn't I, why didn't I pick this up the first time? You do pick up something, but you don't pick it up fully. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I on the first watch, like I got that the janitor was significant and I had the idea that like maybe this is all in his head somehow, but it just never like really clicked in a coherent way. Um, so I think that's also a great thing about it is that he gives you enough that it sort of makes sense, but like you never, right. at least I never 100% got there. And that's, I think, a very tricky thing to nail because it's like this theory of mind problem. Like, you know, you, the writer and director, obviously know everything about this and to calibrate it such that the viewer going in is like following it, but not too much, but also isn't completely lost. Like that seems like to me nearly impossible to to nail that in that way. I didn't see this as a big twist that is revealed. It was just slowly kind of unraveled over the course of the, over the, course of the film. Yeah, calling it a twist is doing it a disservice. I think because this movie really doesn't depend on. <clears throat> I think it. I think Charlie Kaufman, from what I read, Charlie Kaufman himself thinks that that being the twist, it was all in this guy's head, is a cheap like way to make a movie. And if that were the primary payoff of the movie, I think it would fail miserably. That like, oh, this whole time it had been in his in the you know this was all a fantasy in the mind of the janitor. It can't be just that, and it can't hinge the, uh, so much on that and like as you all says like i don't know how he pulls it off but he pulls it off where i think i could watch this have not read any of the reviews or the book and not know that this was in the mind of the janitor and still have some vague sense that this is a retrospective in the mind of the old man it, not sure who's real and who's not you would also know that this is about regret and missed opportunities and loneliness and aging no matter what plot like connection you get. The themes of it are, are so, I think, viscerally felt throughout. So, um, okay, let's, t- let's talk about it. So it's, it starts with a, um, Jesse Buckley, who plays in the credits is described as a young woman. At the time, you think she's your protagonist because we're getting her voiceover. And she says, I'm thinking of ending things. And there's these lines about once that thought gets into your head, you can't get rid of it. It's constantly with you. You sleep with it. You wake up with it. And so, you know, you already have a double meaning sense is does that because people say that about suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, that it's like this this thing this that you can't once you think of it, it's like all you can think about. But then it's also pretty clear that she means I'm thinking of breaking up with her boyfriend, Jake, played by Jesse Plemons. And all this is going on in her head while she's waiting for him going to meet her parents, his parents. And meanwhile, there's this old man who's, it seems like, looking at her and also talking to himself. And on, on the rewatch, it seemed like he was actually speaking her voiceover. But again, you don't, it's, it's not in any way clear that that's what's going on. You hear a male voice if you're even pay, paying attention and you see this guy looking out at her, but that's all. It felt like bleed into her mm-hmm. internal monologue. And I was like, whoa, weird. Why? Like, how are how his thoughts bleeding into her internal yes, monologue? Right. So then they get in the car and they, you know, they seem for a little while like a kind of a normal couple. A little sort of, he's on the sad sack side, Jesse Plemons, you know, playing a little like. 
AKA Fat yeah, Matt Damon. Or, and he's playing like Fargo season two, Matt, uh, Jesse Plemons. <laughs> yeah, kind of, exactly. Um, but he's really good, I think. And they're sort of joking around, but also there's just from the very beginning, she's thinking stuff and he seems to sense that she's thinking and is constantly interrupting her thoughts. And she's always anticipating what he's going to say. And so there's this very disorienting feeling when they're talking where like she immediately just responds to him in a way that just seems off, but it's not that off. Like, it's also like they're having conversations that a boyfriend and a girlfriend for, uh, you know, like six weeks would have if they were in that situation. There's a couple weird things that happen on the trip over. Number one, at first he brings up Wordsworth and she says, I'm not a, like, I don't like poetry. I'm not a metaphorical person. And he keeps trying to tell her about it. I guess she at that point is like a biologist of some kind or a virologist. And he says, like, aren't you proud of me for showing interest in your work? But then, you know, a little while later, he convinces her to recite her poem that she just wrote. And she does it. And it's a really haunting poem about loneliness and despair and the dread of going home every single night. It's, it's a beautiful and really, really desolate kind of poem. And there's a point where she looks outside the window and she's just looking at us as she's describing it. And all this time, you get this janitor, like you get interspersed with all of this, just the janitor pushing his uh, mop and the, the, what do you call the thing that he's pushing? <laughs> like, like a little bucket with wheels, that thing? Utility, yeah, utility cart or yeah. something through the... Yeah, he, he looks like the uh, smells like teen spirit guy. <laughs> smells like teen spirit yeah. janitor. Yeah, and so now she, she, it seems like she's a poet. I don't know, what do you guys think of the, the car scene? Because that's the, that's the first big chunk of the movie is them in the car. Yeah, so it already feels tense. Like they're, it's clearly not okay between them. And they have these weird, like not quite arguments, but like kind of tense, almost disagreements. She really doesn't want to read the poem. He sort of like pushes her into it. She really doesn't want to hear the Wordsworth and he keeps like sort of perseverating on it. Like he seems kind of menacing in this like depressed fat dude way, which I love. I mean, Jesse Plemons is just like amazing. <laughs> so it's already got this like unsettling sort of mood to it. Um, I noticed that her profession kept changing, but somehow it didn't, I didn't really know what to do with that. And so I just kind of like put it aside. I'm like, oh, that's weird. I thought she was supposed to be a biologist. I guess maybe the poetry is in her spare time or something. Like I sort of came up with some explanation for it to, to make it sort of make sense. Uh, but yeah, it was a very like ominous and uh, uncomfortable beginning to the movie already. And something that must've been like, if you just think about how hard is it to shoot two people in a car talking for like 15, 20 minutes in an interesting way, that's kind of crazy to like pull that off because I was never like, oh, this is feeling tedious. You know, I was, I was always like interested. Because it's so unsettling, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's super unsettling. So I, the, the thing that I made note of that I really thought was well done was how stilted, like early, early relationship kind of like they're being polite and they're making like corny jokes to each other. Like the kind of, the kind of conversation filler that you use with people that you don't quite know yet, like uh, kind of, almost corny at times. And here's where I started to think, okay, well, we're hearing her in her monologue. She is at times getting a bit confused as to what's going on. So she she's not clear how long they've been in a relationship sometimes. And this is where my running hypothesis, which lasted for throughout the car scene, 
was that that this is the memory of an old woman who is like suffering from senility and she's trying to piece together her early interactions um which turns out not to be uh, what's going on and that i but i attributed it solely to i was still believing that we are in the mind of this main protagonist this woman who who might be which makes sense because you're hearing her think right so naturally she's like she seems like the center of the story yeah the moment where she's like i can't remember the last road trip i went on i was like oh so this is something about her she's an unreliable memory unreliable narrator maybe i didn't quite go to old woman but i was like maybe she's mentally ill this is kind of a fantasy that she's having maybe yeah you know on the road trip uh, what he responds to that is well, something like road trips are great. They're good to remind yourself that the world is larger than your own head, which I think is kind of like one of the thesis statements of the movie. This is a guy that's, or, or this is a character, both characters uh, are the way they're portrayed are trapped in their heads, in their own heads. And, you know, one of the characters in a fairly profound way. I wonder, like, like we're kind of cock teasing the the big spoiler. So I think that one of the scenes with the janitor uh, as they're in the car on the way to the parents' house is of the janitor walking through the hall and these two girls, these kind of two sort of hot, pretty high school girls are, make, are making fun of him as he walks by and then he cuts to him cleaning gum off the desk. And then you hear the wipers going as that's happening, the wipers in the car. And so I think that's your biggest clue, and it's not one that I was able to, you know, connect the first time through, that this is actually going on in the janitor's mind, that he has imagined a, a girl that it turns out he met at some trivia night and tried to talk to, but she thought he was a creeper and she was there with her friend and just wanted him to go away and doesn't remember him. And he's constructed this fantasy where they got together that night and then they're going to meet his parents. And, you know, what's so unbearably sad about it is even in his fantasy of this of this uh, girlfriend, <laughs> she still wants to break up with him. And she kind of asserts herself throughout the movie as like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to play ball with your fantasy. And, you know, when you think he, this is a guy who's so lonely and so disconnected from like other people who are, who like him and are nice to him, it's, it's like that he can't even construct somebody who just wants to be with him. By the way, by the way, genus edition, my whole life I've been saying genius edition. Yeah, yeah that was great. <laughs> I thought that was funny. You are like the like the old farmhand white mother of the, the podcast. Really <laughs> so so Tamler, like on that idea that like he's just he can't even imagine that somebody would like him. Um I did you take this that they saw each other at trivia and that she was annoyed and uh, disturbed by him talking to her literally, because I thought maybe that's just his imagination too, right? So he like one time looked at a girl, awkwardly tried to talk to her, and now he has it in his head that she's like, you know, like hated the encounter and most likely she just, right? Like it was nothing, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Absolutely. I agree. It's like, uh, that's his projection of her now that she's decided to exit the fantasy. And so that's his interpretation of her. But the, the one thing you know is that they never got together. And right. that's the last time he saw her. And right. that was a long time ago. I mean, he even gives himself white gunk in the corner of his mouth, right? This is like a fantasy for which he has little control, over which he has little control. And it's like, what? why is he 
failing to, I mean, is he trying to give himself a realistic relationship? My sense is that in the fantasy, he isn't just Jake. He is also her. And I think this is why we are hearing both her thoughts and then later on. Like, I, I think that it is, he is exercising his, his ability to, to fictionalize and he's making himself the protagonist woman. I mean, there's definitely things that she thinks that are part of him, but that's also because he, he is constructing her. I kind of think that the, what you were saying earlier that, you know, it wouldn't work if it was just a twist and it's like, oh, it was the janitor all along. Like, it's almost like she's getting away from him and she is acquiring agency and control over the course of the movie. And there's an interesting thing on the car trip back where he tries to interrupt her thoughts and now he can't. He's always able to interrupt her thoughts on the way there. But on the way back, like she's she's able to think and, you know, and talk about like, why, you know, why am I leaving? Why am I still with him? How does it happen? And it's and it's not that clear cut where all of a sudden they're not connected at all because they have some laughs after that and stuff like that. But it is very different. And I get the sense that she is not something that he has control over. So in that sense, I'm not sure I agree that she's also him because she just becomes a like a real character at that point. Yeah, no, no, I I, um, I like the way you're saying it, which is, it's not that different from what I'm saying. I mean, like she, she is taking full form. I think you're totally right. Like if the very first time she's thinking, he says, what did you say? Right. And you, you mentioned this. And, and I think you're right. As she's becoming a more complex character, he is having less control over her, her agency. But that to me is just kind of a way of saying that, that she is a part of his psyche in the same way that Jake is part of his psyche. Um, but, but, but you yeah. get the sense that there is a Jake who probably lived in that house yes. with his aging parents and was yes. and, and maybe still lives there or maybe lives in a new apartment. I don't think that's fully clear and now works as it right he even kind of looks like he even kind of looks like the janitor right like they make him like slightly like an old like a plausible older version of him yeah they get to the house and they meet the parents played by tony collette and david Dulles, and they are both great and i actually think the scenes at the house are my favorite scenes in the movie and they're both funny and desperately sad and their meditations on being a parent of a child that you're proud of and that you love, but hasn't quite kind of made it. And, you know, you get the, you get a real sense of these parents. Also, you know, the guy, David Thewlis is hilarious, you know, like an old timer who hates abstract art and thinks it's just a con job. And I mean, he's very funny in the early parts of it. And then when he starts getting dementia and he, he ages over the course of the evening, it hops around a, a lot in, in terms of their time frame. It's so sad and very much reminded me, um, a lot of this reminded me of my dad as he got older and then started to get dementia. And, you know, like it's, it just, ca he really captures just the, the frustration and the weariness with it, like just so well. And it's beautiful, but also like there are some scenes that are hilarious. David Thewlis is amazing in this. And I knew I knew him and I, I, I had to look it up in the middle of the movie, but I know him mostly from Fargo, um, where he plays a viscerally disgusting human being um, and an amazing villain. But in this, he is so good. And I don't know if this is Charlie Kaufman's writing and the I mean, it's probably a combination of their performance and, and the writing where they say things that parents would say or that old people would say. They, 
they really are just saying the kinds of corny shit that you would expect a couple to say when you're visiting, you know, your boyfriend's parents for the first time and they're a little bit old fashioned. It's very mundane and banal, but like the things that he says really capture this character so well. And Thulis is p- pulls it off so well. I- so did you, did it strike you guys that like, he's supposed to be some sort of like prestigious occupation? Like it's not entirely clear about like a physicist or something. And then his mom keeps talking about how he like, wasn't that bright, but he like tried hard. <laughs> I, yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. The, the dil- no, diligence pin. The diligence pin. And yeah, in fact, yeah, when he's feeding pin. his mom, he's wearing the diligence pin. And the mom <laughs> yeah. is saying like, you know, we were proud of him for the diligence. He might not have a lot of natural talent and ability, but he worked harder than everybody, which is even more impressive. Uh, you know, when they arrive at the house, he won't let her go in. And this is another one of those just like unsettling things. He's like, I need to stretch my legs. And then they go to the farm. And this is where it starts getting a little horror movie. First, you see these sheep that are all penned in. And in her voiceover, she's imagining what it would be like to be penned in like a sheep. And then then you get this, the story of the pig, which is one of the most horrible stories, like the, being eaten alive by maggots and you know, they keep saying it's brutal life on a farm. And then he has this other line during that scene where he says, other animals live in the present, humans cannot, so they invented hope. I think another like, just... Great line, what a great line. And then they get in the house and the parents don't come down for a while and there's music playing and it's just all so weird. Okay, I wanted to say a few things about the the farmhouse scene because uh, yeah, it's jarring that he doesn't go in at first, and he's like, I just need to stretch. They understand. Then when they go in, there's like this creepy basement that, that you know, is like taped up and has scratches on the outside of it. And he's like, it's just the dog. And at first I'm like, wait, is there really a dog? And then, yeah, sure enough, there's a dog. And um, upon finishing the movie and thinking about that scene, it really does seem like he is writing this story in his head and he wasn't quite ready yet for the narrative part that was to come. So he's like, oh, let's let's hold back for a second because I haven't worked out what's going to happen in the house yet. So like, let me show you the pigs. And the creepiness of that farmhouse, which is objectively, I think, you know, all of the trappings of like a country home, like all of the tchotchkes that you might see in a farmhouse. Um, there is something that, that Charlie Kaufman captures so well that I don't know if you guys experience it, but the lighting of those scenes is to me the worst kind of nightmare lighting that I have. Like that is straight out of my most uncomfortable dreams. The whole way through, the light is, it's not completely dark. It's this weird twilighty where you can't quite see. And he totally plays on this with her clothing, um, with the sweater that kind of keeps changing colors, but it's not clear that it's changing colors. It might just be lighting. It's like that that blue and uh, the golden. Yeah, white it starts dress. out kind of bright, warm orange in the car, and then it turns kind of light purple, and then it's like tan and black and stuff like that. And then she's just wearing yeah. a dress, like later. And then she's wearing a dress with pearl with pearl uh, necklace. Yeah, there it's it's and the dog is always shaking in a way that's yeah. Really, you never see the dog's oh, face. Yeah, yeah. super yeah. uncanny. And, and it uncanny. makes that like everything is there to like get under your skin a little bit, like and never let you feel relaxed. Mm-hmm. He's so good at that. I don't know what he's doing, but he is so good at unsettling in non-obvious ways. You know, just little details. Like at some point, we just get a shot of the dad's foot, and it just makes you uncomfortable, right? It's like bloody toe, dirty bloody toes, and like dirty bloody toes just make me 
like really uncomfortable for no reason other than to make me uncomfortable. Even the cup of the ice cream that's sort of spilling into the car and like that was stressing me out. And I'm not like a neat freak by any means, but it was stressing me out that like all of a sudden like melted ice cream is going to go down into like the gear shift and the, and like he was getting stressed out about that too. Yeah. Like everything about this doesn't let you relax. There's a scene where he, like you said, he's describing the basement and telling her not to go down there. Um, He said he always hated it. And she's just kind of stalking him under it in a kind of playful way, but in a way that just made me feel like I was getting trapped in this under the stairs place by the basement door. And then he tries to play it off. He's like, he's hiding down there. Ha. She's like, who's hiding down there? It's like, no, nothing, nothing. It's so like, it's an anxiety machine driving machine this movie and also at this point she's gotten a few phone calls that are coming from a name that is hers so lucy my first thought was oh has she taken over the identity of somebody else like has she been lying to this guy when she, when i saw that first phone call come in and then you see like all of these missed phone calls another by the way very anxiety inducing feeling is when you the see screen like of missed 10 calls. missed phone calls all yeah. of which say now like now now <laughs> um so so but there's a clue that something weird is going on she's getting phone calls from essentially herself whose name is never quite like firmly no, it keeps on. changing it goes from lucy to lucia to louisa and then ames and then yeah. amy <laughs> yeah today's episode is brought to you by the great courses plus listeners what are you doing Seriously, what's wrong with you? Why are you wasting your time listening to us yammering away when you could be listening to people who actually know what they're talking about? People who can actually teach you something. The Great Courses Plus has real professors, prominent researchers who know how to teach and know how to engage people. I've been a fan of this company since their cassette days. Look, I would have listened to them out of a radio with a giant horn, like, uh, you know, like that dog in the photo. But now, with the Great Courses Plus app, you can learn anytime, anywhere. It's so easy. On your phone, on your TV, on your, uh, what do you call them? Why can't I think? Oh, iPads. Uh, There are so many great courses to listen to. One that we've been enjoying is the Great Questions of Philosophy and Physics, which is presented by Professor Stephen Gimbel, who holds the Distinguished Teaching Chair at Gettysburg College. Professor Gimbel introduces us to all the brain-melting theories about how this universe works and delves into the philosophy of science that grounds these weird and fascinating accounts of the world. With a vast selection of subjects, The Great Courses Plus truly has something for everyone, whether it's Russian literature, psychology, astronomy, history, classical music, and so much more. So sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. And guess what? The Great Courses Plus, they have a limited time offer for our listeners, an entire month for free. That's access to any and all courses for the next month, completely free. What do you have to lose? Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. Uh, remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wizards. And thank you to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode. A couple yeah. of favorites of mine in that parent scene. They're talking about some Billy Crystal movie in Paris, and then David Thule is like, Billy Crystal <laughs> is a Nancy. And then he just kind of knows. I love, and then, okay, and then I, I know you, I'm sure you're going to get to this. All of a sudden, there is a Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah, this <laughs> is the movie that the janitor is watching as he's cleaning up the school. Yeah, but it's not really yeah. a Robert Zemeckis <laughs> movie. It's just, it's terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. It's so 
bad. It's so bad. It's just a diner scene where a, a, a server or waitress is taking someone's order, and then the guy that she's that is supposedly in love with her just goes on to gives this speech about how, what a great woman she is, and she's an animal rights activist. Everybody cheers at the end, and she gets fired. I needed that job, <laughs> asshole. Did you say you loved me? I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what did you think of the parents, you know, going, getting older and sicker and even dying in Tony Collette's case or get, and then getting younger again? Like, what did you make, like, how do you interpret that within the framework of your larger interpretation of the movie? Yeah, so that these are his actual memories of his parents who aged and died while he lived with them, that there's just sort of like jumbled together in a out of order way in this story that he's creating. I, I, I agree. Like in that, when she says about the painting, now she's a painter and she paints landscapes, which you find out later that he had painted landscapes. And the father says, David says like, well, I mean, you can't evoke an emotion unless there's a person in the painting feeling that emotion. Like it can't be sad unless there's a person feeling, looking sad in the field or in the, you know, the landscape. It's such an interesting point, such a weird point to, to make. I, you know, a lot of times Charlie Kaufman is being a little meta and, you know, I have like a boner for meta. So I, I just eat those up. Like he's making some commentary on, on his own task to try to make us uh, feel emotions about these people who don't actually exist. I thought the parts with the parents, especially the the part with dementia in the end, David Thewlis plays so well. He just turns into like from a sort of annoying, like like kind of the kind of dad you're embarrassed about, like you're embarrassed to bring friends around because they're probably secretly racist and misogynistic, and um, but they're trying to be on their best behavior, but they still can't. Then to that transformation into the old man remembering how his wife used to laugh. Um, and how she was funny and how over the years it faded. He turns into this sweet old man. And I thought that those, the performances of the parents over the years were, that was really a point where I was just along for the ride. I didn't care what the truth of the matter was. I actually don't even care if he made up some of those touching scenes that they never really happened to his parents, right? Like that, that there was his childhood room and there's a little handwritten sign and you come to find out it's because they have labels on everything in the house because he's losing his memory. And, and he says, like, I'm just, to be honest, I'm looking forward to losing my memory entirely. So I won't remember that I'm losing my memory. Those, they're just touching. They're just like, I, at that point, I really didn't care what the truth of the matter was. It was just, it was a commentary on aging and life and the, the scope and like people like us whose parents are aging or, or perhaps have already died. Like that's, that hits me. Like, you know, watching your parents get older. Yeah, and when you combine it with these quarrels that he's pro almost certainly had with his parents, like about painting and, but then as the dad grew older and like that, that he, that the character had compassion for his dad. And the, I think that's shown through Jesse Buckley, who by the way, is just amazing in this, I think. Like, and I don't think you could do this movie without her. No, I think she's great. Uh, one thing I was going to say is how confusing is it to have two actors? <laughs> well, I wonder if that was, I almost thought that was intentional, like, because they are playing in some sense reflections of the same person. Uh, ooh, that would be so, so meta. That's that really fucking really meta. Beyond meta. Uh, but she, like, she is kind to the father and she hugs him at a certain point. She puts her head on his shoulder at a certain point when he's talking about. And so I think that represents either, you know, he would have loved to have a girlfriend who, you know, was that kind and compassionate that could, you know, in the way my wife was with my aging dad, you know, it was, it was really helpful and supportive to have that. So it could, you could look at it as, 
oh, this is just a representation of his compassion. Or you could look at it as a darker place of this is what he wished he had but never had is somebody that could help ease the burden of taking care of his parents, you know. That's what I that's that's the way I, I read it. By the way, a couple things. One, one of the uh, scenes with the mom where she's talking about her tinnitus, um, which if you've ever had it is super disturbing. But she says at some point that it's that it's the kind where she's constantly hearing whispers, and she says it's like it's like somebody sharing the secrets of the universe with me, but I can't I can't make it out, which is to me like such an interesting way like that would be so frustrating to constantly be hearing little whisper sounds but actually not have make anything out that is to me just a, an example of the unsettling that I, he put that idea in my mind and now i'm like fucking scared to death that i'm gonna get that kind of tinnitus where it's like, and then she says, or maybe it's just recipes i don't know uh, and then <laughs> yeah, she laughs exactly. and that yeah no that's kind of the emotional that's a, an emotional high point in the in this and and one where you're just feeling so much just disoriented uh yeah despair it's i keep saying despair but that's how it feels at that point did you notice jimmy the dog didn't make it out his his i did notice that ashes yeah (laughs) probably that's how he died like just got something in his ear or something like like an ear infection (laughs) and we haven't got there's so much that we haven't talked about but any other thoughts about the the scenes in the house no i the the one thing i was going to say is that it really so there's something about a child's room um, after many, many years, that is a really, for some reason, a powerful emotional induction to me, like to see to see the room that you grew up in. Oh, we should also say one thing that happens is that she goes down into the basement where a very young Tony Collette tells her to just go down there and she finds in the washing machine the, uh, the uniform of the janitor um, from the school. Yeah, which I didn't know was the uniform of the janitor yeah. until later. And then she, you, she also sees there... The paintings of this guy Blakelock, who uh, who is a landscape painter, and then his paintings below them that are just signed Jake. And so at this point, if you're still with the Jesse Buckley character, which there's no reason for you not to, it's told entirely from her perspective. Uh, almost, you know, till the last maybe ten or fifteen minutes of the movie, you're starting to think, okay, what's going on? She knows she's trapped in somebody's in somebody else's world, and she's trying to get out, but she can't. And that continues as they finally leave. And I honestly didn't think they were going to leave. Yeah, I know. And she keeps saying, let's go. I need to go. Let's go. I need to go. And that adds to so much tension, right? Like, this is a dream. This yeah. is a bad dream. She can't, she escape, can't it. escape it. Yeah, you keep exactly. saying, I have chains in the trunk. Uh, Don't worry. Like, because it's a snowstorm. It's a horrible <laughs> snowstorm outside. And But yeah, they get in the car, which almost was like a relief to me. And they're driving home. But then he says, we should pull over at... This, if there's a lin- um, like a high Lynchian point of the movie, it is the Tulsi, Tulsi town, this ice cream place. And it's open at midnight in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, with the two girls from the yeah. high school who are laughing at him and then a girl with who's kind with a rash who actually pours them. And meanwhile, the girls are kind of laughing at him and he didn't even want to order because he says they won't actually serve him there or they'll make fun of him yeah he has shame like you can tell that he's just ashamed to be ordering and you can imagine being the old janitor in a town 
and seeing all these high school kids year over year over year and and knowing that like you're going in this little town they're going to be some of those kids who laughed at you in the halls are going to be the ones working there and he's just he, he's ashamed of his life and it's really sad because he had these ambitions and these interests these intellectual artistic interests and they just didn't work out for him what what did you make of the scene though with the girl this is something i'm still trying to figure out how it fits or if it does fit but with the girl with the rash who's actually nice to him but then also it's, it's nice to her but then also tells gives her kind of a warning like you don't have to you don't have to do this i'm worried about you and yeah do we do we see the rash girl at any point previous that's something that i was going to look out for no no. Yeah. Not as far as I could tell in the yeah. second watch. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that what she's saying is you don't have to go through with it, right? She's like, you don't have to go. You don't have to kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagined that she was some student who was nicer to him. And this is how he's imagining her like in the story. Like maybe who works at that place and who's the only one who will serve him without making him feel ashamed or something. Right. Does that place actually exist? Are we a hundred percent on that? It's it's a it's supposed to be a Dairy Queen and apparently it's a Dairy Queen in the book um, and but and they they even do that thing where they serve it upside down like they would in a Dairy Queen, um, but they call it Tulsi Town as a nod to Tulsa, Oklahoma, I guess. And it's uh, I think it is meant to exist, you know. That's how I interpret it in any way, and it's a place that he goes to because you see a, a dumpster full of these. Uh, ice cream. So maybe it, it, it's kind of a favorite of his. She almost feels like she's trying to wake him up too from this delusion. She because she talks about the varnish. She starts getting you know explicit about like you don't have to. So it's almost like she's trying to drag him out of this. But I agree, she's someone who has shown him kindness from the school. I hadn't thought about this scene enough, I'm, but I'm glad we're talking about it because you're right. It is the lynchiest it gets, and I'm not. I'm not convinced that he should be going for Lynchy. He's already has his own way of being completely creepy. Um, and, you know, like getting to the that sort of level of absurdity, I don't know that it did much for the plot other than just continue the creepy feeling. Like just the idea that you would be eating ice cream in a blizzard is <laughs> anxiety inducing. Um, and then you wouldn't keep going. Like, just go, man. Just get out of there. But you really start feeling stressed for her, too, because she wants to get home. And he he keeps making, like, any kind of excuse to not to not take her home. I do like I do like what you guys said about, uh, I think you all were saying, that, that she seems to be a character who's trying to pull him out of his own head right now. Um, and I like to imagine that that's how he took the despair of being a janitor for 30 years at this school, having somebody be nice to him must have felt like somebody who was trying to pull you out of that. There's an interesting line, another line that I think represents what this movie is all about, where, uh, and I don't even, I didn't write down who said it, but I guess it doesn't matter. It's between, they're both in the car and I think it's her. She says, everything is tinged. Everything is affected by mood, everything. So every time you look out and you see something, it is colored by your frame of mind and your circumstances like there's no objective thing and then they start talking about colors it's like colors are what we project on the world they don't are actually out there but they're making right. it in terms of the mood she's like i know i'm a physicist <laughs> and i'm like oh she's a physicist now. <laughs> but she's definitely acquiring her own sense of like you can't interrupt my stream of thought anymore and you know i'm gonna fight back even if i'm going to fight back as pauline kale i'm going to make you feel like insecure and it's almost like i, I was trying to figure out so it's at this point where she just turns into pauline 
Kale's review of a Cassavetti's movie, A Woman Under the Influence. And so, again, I was thinking, is this her acquiring agency, but she can only do that with uh, thoughts that he has or experiences that he has. And so he's read that book, and so he knows the review. Or is he trying to box her in as the review so that she can will remain trapped? I think you could look at it both ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't seem to me like he likes it. Like, he's kind of no, like, well, I, I was doesn't. just trying to say I like the movie. <laughs> If if that is her voice, she does a great job at transforming herself into this like sort of transatlantic like accent, sort of like ah da 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 da, like like powerful woman of the forties. <laughs> there is a few things that uh, about the car scenes that I that really got to me, and I think they're part of this of Charlie Kaufman's ability to to be unsettling. One is obvious, which is the amount of the the low visibility in the car is so distressing. If any, if you've ever driven in that kind of storm, you're like, why aren't they pulling over? Oh my God. Like, why are they continuing? Those windshield wipers are not powerful enough to get you through that. Two, they never wear seatbelts. And this, I, I understand this might be a visually important because you don't want that image blocking you. But I think that there is something to the fact that they're not wearing seatbelts that is adding to at least to my anxiety. And three, he does this really cool thing in those scenes with audio. Sometimes he's right outside the window while they're talking and you get all of the noise of the blizzard. And sometimes it's inside and it's completely quiet except for their voices. And that was enough to keep me a little off balance. The windshield wipers are like a character in the movie because there's like two, there's like sometimes where it makes a certain sound and it's very loud, other times where it's completely quiet, other times where it's like, and so yeah, you have not only like the interior of the car or and the exterior, but you have the windshield wipers that are sometimes making this noise of interference, almost like not allowing you to follow what's going on, and other times totally silent, which it has its own unsettling quality because it's like all of a sudden there's no sound except what they're saying, and it's yeah, yeah, off balance is exactly how you feel throughout those. Right, and and I think that just I mean it's a point many people made, but but the director is not only manipulating emotions. A good director with visual storytelling, like the audio, is playing a, a really important role here. Um, that I think is harder to notice if you're not paying attention, um, or maybe some people notice it. I noticed it more on the second watch. Like it was affecting me the first watch, but I was starting to notice it more. Like exactly how it was working on the second time. They also have another talk about youth how youth is better than being old. And as you get old, you're less fun, you're less vibrant, you're less healthy. And so this really is about like your body decaying too. And so like if your body's decaying, your hopes and dreams never realize, were never realized, you can see where his, this person's head is at, you know. There's a line there, old people are the ash heap of youth. <laughs> it's very depressing. <laughs> so then they get to the high school and I was, even though it's a horrible thing and it's like almost kidnapping at this point, like I was stressed <laughs> out by the the ice cream. So I was glad that when he took them and got them out of the car and, and threw them away, but he, he, he won't throw them away in one thing. And it's like, and then he, and then as he comes back and, and they should leave, but they still don't leave. Uh, so first they have this, you know, she almost accuses him of kidnapping her and they have that baby it's cold 
uh, argument, <laughs> and, um, and w- which she says is a song about coercion. And he's like, okay, but, you know, and he's like, it's not about roofies. It's like a song in the 30s or 40s. And he's like, yeah, but... She's like, they had Mickeys in the 30s. <laughs> and it really get the, you get the sense that he's trapping her there. But then they have this moment where they, like, kiss, which they barely do in the, mo- in the whole movie. But... Right at that moment, you get this really horrible, like ho- almost horror movie of, of the janitor just sort of in the frame with them. And he gets really unsettled and says, I, he's looking at us. I can't let the stand. I have to go. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then he goes into the high school. And that's where things go haywire in a different way than the rest of the movie. Like it goes haywire that there is this period where they're at the high school. There's no reason for them not to leave. And they, he still won't leave. He's like, it's peaceful here, which I think is, you know, later in the movie, I think you'll see as a representation of the janitor deciding whether or not to leave. From the moment they get there, they notice there's only one other car in the parking lot. And so they infer that it must be the janitor. And you do get the, the feeling that it's the solace of the janitor to be able to work these late hours. Um, and he, he, he can't remove himself from the story enough not to remind his fictional character to take off her shoes. I just cleaned the floors. <laughs> he just cleaned the floors. <laughs> so should we go through like what happens here? So he, she goes in after Jake. He, she meets the janitor. The janitor asks, she says, have you seen my boyfriend? The janitor asks, what does he look like? And here's where she says, like, what does he look like? I don't know. You know, he was some guy that I'm... People are so hard to describe. He was one of (laughs) thousands of non-interactions in my life, you know, she ends up with. And uh, she says, like, you know, it's like asking me to describe a mosquito that bit me 40 years ago. And then she hugs him. And then it becomes a ballet from Oklahoma. (laughs) <laughs> okay the hug tender really yeah. nice scene like the, this is the collision of the worlds he's wrapping up his story you know she obviously is his well not not so obvious maybe but but in retrospect he she is obviously the creation in his mind and so having having her comfort him is a really nice touch i, I found it to be a nice little emotional moment and here's where i might as well just let you guys take over because it's not that i'd dislike the way that Charlie Kaufman ended the movie is that I just could not be bothered like to to care about the Oklahoma sing and dance <laughs> numbers like I actually fast forwarded through the dancing like <laughs> that's horrible sorry Jen uh, I mean <laughs> I, I understand not l- loving this part of the movie but fast forwarding through it is not inexcusable not okay it was a 15 15 second skip button you know I, if if something happened that was you know like i, I rewound but yeah well it's interesting like, so um, but yeah go ahead Yo, so, how do you interpret so that? well there's there's different parts right there's the ballet which is idealized versions of his younger self and the girlfriend and him i guess as the villain in the ballet and then there's a, a prize acceptance speech and then there's a song from oklahoma right am i getting those in the right order yeah, so let's go with the ballet first. Is that an Oklahoma dance number? It's not. Um, there is, as far as I understand, now I don't know Oklahoma that well and certainly didn't know that Oklahoma was as dark as it apparently is. But, <laughs> Neither but, did I. <laughs> um, but there is a ballet scene in it. It's just, you know, obviously it doesn't have the character. And I don't even know if it... Ha- so Oklahoma has a kind of fucked up love triangle too. It's not really a love triangle. It's, you know, this one app lonely outsider and this couple 
But um, but yeah, so in the ballet, sh- sh- it, it's the two idealized versions and then the janitor who ends up attacking the younger version and killing him. And in some sense, even though he's being kind of rough with her, he's also liberating her from his younger self because then she leaves and that's the last we see of her and she's free or hmm. extinguished, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. What did you think, Yoel, of, the, of, of choosing that way to wrap up these characters? I just didn't understand it in the moment. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I have no idea what the fuck is going on, right? And so, like, you could look at that as a failure, I guess. But in retrospect, I'm like, no, that's, like, that makes sense. It was cool to look at. I think it's, like, thematically, like, there's this whole musical thing running through it. Like, in the car, we didn't talk about this. Yeah, we didn't talk right? about Right, but, this, like, a song yeah. from you. I, I know nothing about musicals, I should say. But a song, evidently, from a musical comes on, and she's like, you like musicals? And he's like, no, no, I just, you know, I, I dabble. I like a few. And then he just starts naming musicals. <laughs> Then. And you you also see throughout the movie that he is a janitor while they're rehearsing Oklahoma. And one of the girls, the bitchy girls, is the star of Oklahoma. And they live in Oklahoma. You see an Oklahoma license plate on his car um, towards the end of the movie, too. Even though fil- filmed in upstate New York. And very much if looks like it's filmed. you bleak and depressing, that's yeah. where you go. <laughs> they don't have snowstorms like that in yeah. Oklahoma, you know? Um, it reminds me almost of that um, Yoel drove me to the airport when I interviewed at Cornell. And I believe there was a snowstorm going on. Yeah. I don't remember no, the weather, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a depressing fucking drive for sure. <laughs> um, it makes, I, I, it's not that it took me out of the movie that much. I just, it's not my thing. I don't think it it's failed. And I think it's very in keeping with the general, the broad theme of what's going on, which I hope we'll get to talk to because I think it's, you know, the, the thing that Charlie Kaufman is giving us in this particular case the musicals make sense for for the character. Yeah, and and so then after that dance scene where he kills his younger self and the, and Jesse Buckley is free or dead or just gone in any case, he goes to his car, the janitor. So now it's just the janitor. There's no uh, there's nobody but him, and he's in his truck and he. He, he, he seems to then make a decision not to uh, turn on the car. And so maybe you think, oh, he's going to freeze to death. But then he just starts getting really upset. It's a very distressing scene. He starts getting really upset as he starts seeing just flashes of his parents over and over, like just little clips of his parents. And then all of a sudden the windshield turns into a commercial, black and white commercial, like it looks like from the 20s or something or 30s for Tulsi Town. And then... Out of that emerges a animated pig with maggots kind of underneath it that talks and is actually really nice. It's kind of a nice pig, a nice guy, um, and leads him through the naked because he's taken off all his clothes, leads him naked through the high school and says, let's get some clothes on you. And he goes out after that and gives what I later read was the, the John Nash speech from A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't know that that's what was happening uh, either. Yeah. He's he's on a stage. It's the high school auditorium. But when you look in the audience, everyone's like dressed really nicely and if, if very creepily because they're all aged in makeup that just looks grotesque. They're, they're all wearing, yeah, they're all wearing like stage makeup for looking old from a distance. Like it's, it's very, very weird. Um, and he gives, yeah. And, you know, and there's a, there's a, a set that is made to look like his childhood room and and he just gives the John Nash speech. 
And then he goes from that to singing a number by this character from Oklahoma, Judd, who is a kind of a lonely outsider character who loves loves the, the main woman. Again, I don't know Oklahoma that well. But she loves this guy named Curly, and they kind of make fun of Judd. And there is that's not the song that he sings, but there is a song in the musical, Poor Judd is Dead. And I didn't know that this, I've heard the song, uh, I've heard the, the music, I've heard the song because it plays sometimes in my house, but I didn't realize that it is a song where the Curly is trying to convince Judd to kill himself and telling, telling him how everybody will react after he's dead. Like, oh, this is, if, if you do this, they'll remember you and feel sorry for you and feel, and it's like, and I have no idea that it was that dark, but in, but but that's not what he sings. He sings a song that Judd sings that just expresses just how alone and just oppressed he is by these people. They they don't respect him. They don't. They're not nice to him. And he feels like he's better than Curly. But you know nobody else agrees. And so it's really sad. And then that's pretty much the end. Yeah. The final shot is is a car with snow covered, uh, snow completely covered, uh, covering it. And we presume that he died in the car. Uh, Except second time viewing. If you stick through it through end. the credits, yeah. the car starts again. You hear the car start. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and the last you, thing I, that I you see. I saw that the first time because I'm a diligent viewer. Yes. Except like <laughs> when there's like a ballet going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah. And so in some ways that's worse. It's like this is just something that happens almost every night and is going to continue to happen. You know, it's like he doesn't even get an escape from oh, it. Wow, you're right. Yeah. That is worse. Yeah, like he's like the live pig that's getting eaten alive by maggots. Slow yeah. death. That's right. The slow, the slow death of that is life. Wow, I, mean, <laughs> I didn't think this movie could get any more fucking depressing. And you, we've managed to. That's a good title. The slow death yeah, the that, slow is life. that is life. That's a great title. That should be the title. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I heard the car start and I didn't think too much of it, but you've given it a depressing, yeah, that, that is a depressing, depressing twist. Um, because, you know, you never see, like, it, at first I was like, oh, maybe he froze to death that, and they're going to find him naked out in the, in the you know, outside of the high school, fro- frozen to death naked. And that would be kind of tragic. But, um, and that would be a story like in Oklahoma, that would be a story that people will tell for years to come, but he doesn't even have the courage to do that. He just fell asleep in his car and woke up the next morning. He's like, fuck, I got to go home now. Right. Exactly. And like do it all again. And maybe what we were seeing throughout the movie isn't a a girl whose job and name kept changing, but just different iterations of this same fantasy that he's been having. There's this weird scene where like it's psycho. She's walking down the steps and then you see her uh, again at the top of the steps. And it's just a stream of her walking down the steps while she's having an interior monologue in the house. So one way of interpreting that is things are just completely fucked up and off the rails. But another way is, no, 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 this isn't one night and one fantasy we were seeing. This is like, you know, one of a hundred and like represented by all the different cups, Tulsi Town cups that are in the dumpster. Like, so this is- Oh, that's oh, great. I like yeah. that. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I like that. I had been envisioning it as as the final thoughts, like in that Borges story of the guy who's about to be executed and he, he just asks God for time. And in the time between the gun being fired and the bullet hitting his brain, he works out a whole story. I had, I had figured that, but this, 
this is this is nice because I yeah it makes sense. They're iterations of the story. He is working through a story every time, right? Every time he is done cleaning the school, he gets in his car and thinks I could end it tonight, and he tells a story, and that story is just evolving as he tells it. But maybe like you could maybe it's like girl's kindness that keeps him going. And maybe that's good. Like the pig says, like, there's kindness in the world. You just have to know where to look. So maybe it is this kind of hope, even if it's hope that is, you know, not grounded in fact. Can we talk a bit about the pastiche of things? You know, throughout the throughout the movie, we see the source material that he's using to create this story. And from what I've read and from watching the movie, I guess Charlie Kaufman is trying to say something um, about that. Um, and there's even a line in the movie, Tandler, you probably remember it better where he says, that's the thing about an idea, a movie, a bad movie idea, it gets in your head and it's hard to get rid of. It replaces your real thoughts, he says. Yeah. Yeah. And this is to me, the loss of identity from that comes, he doesn't have original thoughts now. He has thoughts that are all, you know, what it reminds me of is the, the, Spoiler for Usual Suspects. The final scene of The Usual Suspects, where you realize his whole, Kobayashi's whole story, or Kaiser Soze's whole story, I mean, is put pieced together by little things in, in the police office. You're getting these reminders throughout this movie, or you're getting these little visual cues that, oh, he's taking that part from this, he's taking that part from this. He doesn't even have the originality to give his character a congratulations speech at the end because his character hasn't even accomplished anything really. So he just copies and pastes John Nash's speech because he's like, oh, and here I want like, I want there to be like a thunderous applause because of my, and it's depressing in that sense. But I wondered what you guys thought, like, is he trying to critique something by, by giving us this man who's built his world around these other people's ideas? You know, I, I relate it. I relate to this because you know, I love movies and I'm constantly watching things and con- and I feel like there's just so many times where I am, if you go into my head, I'm just thinking of these movies and these movie lines and then that I then apply to the real world. So I'll be talking to somebody and I'll say that and there's like, it's like, what's wrong with me that I'm like, <laughs> that like people are t- having real conversations with me and I respond with a movie line and it's like, because it's just invaded my thought process to such a degree where it just has become a part of and it. And that line, it replaces like real memories or real thoughts or real ideas. I feel that I, I, there's good and bad points to it. Like there's good things to about it too. It's an, it can be an engine for creativity, but it's also like really kind of upsetting that you, that you are just this construction of all these other things that you've read and seen. And you're not, you're not fully, we're not fully formed in the same way that he hasn't fully formed uh, Lucy. Exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, I, I think this is such a Charlie Kaufman thing that he's, my imagination of him is, is that he's always kind of beating himself up for being a hack, you know, like his hackish alter ego, Donald in adaptation. Um, and even that this is almost a callback to that where Donald's hackish screenplay was called the three, right? And it was that these three characters are actually all the same character. And, you know, now he's gotten made that movie. So like, I, I feel this is like a little bit of him kicking himself of like, oh, you're such a hack. All you do is you, you know, lift shit from, you know, crappy, uh, feel good movies. 
What a great way to do that. What a great way to embrace the like, all right, here's my deepest fear that I'm a hack. I'm taking nothing. I'm only taking other people's ideas and then making a movie out of somebody whose life is making a truly novel creative project out of this. What's so interesting about that, though, and like connecting this to adaptation is so Donald Kaufman, he's the hack. Charlie Kaufman is trying to make art in that movie and his and his twin brother is so much happier than he is because he's not trapped inside his own head and he's not constantly second guessing himself he thinks that idea is amazing and he loves it and he's like going like he has this kind of hot maggie gyllenhaal girlfriend and is also friends with wait is she hot or is she maggie gyllenhaal well, you have a thing where you <laughs> hate her <laughs> is that but, true that's so uh, weird She's so cute. Yeah. She's droopy. She just she's looks adorable. like droopy. I, li- I like her. I mean, I don't have like a huge thing. She's, but the, what's interesting is I think on the one hand, he f- uh, is afraid of being a hack like that. But he also, it has an appeal to him too, that he could be out of his own head enough that he's not second guessing, that he can come up with the three and think it fucking rocks. That that's like, <laughs> he's like, I remember that scene. It's so funny. Like Nicolas Cage is so good as both of them. But Donald's like, he's telling him this ridiculous story that makes no sense. And he's like, isn't that fucked up? Like, isn't that just... (laughs) Mom says it's psychologically taught. (laughs) Nicolas Cage, by the way, is uh, bad in 90% of his movies. And in the 10% where he's good, he's really good. He's so good in that, in adaptation. Um, (laughs) But then also like, you know, it's the John Cusack character and being John Malkovich. There's a a little bit of, uh, or maybe a lot of the character, Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine, like, this is this is the Charlie Kaufman character who's constantly got this running monologue and he wishes he could he could just embrace the world. So is this Charlie Kaufman embracing his Donald Kaufman and getting a deal with Netflix to make a movie that's about three people being one? I don't think so, because number one, they're not the same kind of movie. That was like <laughs> no. a psychological, like a ridiculous psychological thriller. It's supposed to be like the usual suspects, except that it makes no sense. Uh, And this is obviously not. But also, I think he, I I heard an interview with him and he said, I haven't been able to make a move, get a movie made until since 2008, which was an um, Synecdoche, New York, I believe. Anomalisa was later, but that wasn't all him. Synecdoche. One day you'll pronounce that right. Synecdoche. Uh, (laughs) Synecdoche. I didn't even, I couldn't get through Anomalisa, by the way. So I'm not a huge, like, Charlie Kaufman directed fan. I didn't get through Anomalisa actually either. That's funny. I finished it, yeah. and I have I have no memory of it at all. Synecdoche is a movie. We did an episode about it, right? No. We, we could. We did? No. I thought we did. Um, well, we've talked about it in one of our top lists. Um, it is a movie that I thoroughly enjoyed. I think I watched it twice, and I don't ever really want to watch it again. I mean, it's not that I'm averse to watching it. I just don't need to. It is that emotionally distressing to me to watch it. And this is a movie that I won't watch again for a while, probably. Um, because it's hard to digest Charlie Kauf- what Charlie Kaufman's serving up. Like it, he's so good at making me exist- have existential dread that I need to I need to take a step back from Charlie Kaufman. So if he's been trying to get movies made like this, maybe maybe right. he's just you know. exactly <laughs> he fucks up the Donald in you. Like I have a Donald in me, but he makes <laughs> yeah. me like he, he drags me out of that and makes me uh, reflect on whether that's just shallow and ultimately pointless and worthless. And (laughs) meanwhile, I'm getting old and, you know, and (laughs) I'm going to soon be like unloved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are like squarely his target demographic for the dread. 
You know, so I was like watching that. I'd be like, is that me? Am I that pedantic? Oh my God, oh. this is like, it was excruciating. You know, like I have those tendencies, yeah. man. I might have done the Mussolini correction, you know? <laughs> uh, but this one I want to, like, I, I was psyched to go back to it, actually. Um, just because I wanted to make more. Now, I didn't really had a chance to talk to anybody as detailed as, as this conversation. But I, I like, uh, unlike, uh, it took me a while to go back to Synecdoche and I didn't love it the first time. I got, like, I had struggled with it and then l- liked it the second time. But this one, I, I, this one I find is just more watchable throughout. Yeah, you're right. Synecdoche is, is just like a, you know, by design, it is a burning building throughout. The, like, it is a little too intense to to be, to go back. This one, I think, part of it is um, the performance of Jesse, the 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 woman, um, is is it's just, she's very delightful. I think to watch on screen the, when she does yeah. the poem and then afterwards is kind of embarrassed. Now it turns out that it's not her poem; it's a poem by a book in a book that you see later in the movie. But she does the I just read something to you and I'm embarrassed about it, but I want to know how you think. And she does that so well. And there's so many scenes like that where she is just, she just nails what what you would hope the interaction is like. And it feels very real. And I think without that, this movie would, would really struggle. Because you could see it as kind of cheap that it's in her head, but it's not about her. And I think the only way to get away with that is to have her give just this performance that feels so real that it doesn't matter. I don't think, by the way, that I am aware of any movie in which the internal monologue turns out to not be from the protagonist. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's a it's a hard thing to pull off. Um, I I think you pulled it off. Um, the the Tamler, what you were saying about sort of like having this head full of movie quotes and kind of wanting to communicate like that. Um, I mean, I think this is just. For, for anybody who is part of like, you know, say our generation and younger, this is just, it's hard to get around it. Like our head, whenever you do try to come up with something novel, even in academic ideas, it's, it's really anxiety inducing to think that somebody else has probably come up with it and you're not actually doing something new. You just forgot that somebody else did it. But at the same time, it's actually a cool way to be able to communicate with people like in this, in this way, it, it reminded me. Tim, you probably haven't seen this, but you remember uh, you all the Darmok and Jalad at, at Tanagra episode of The Next Generation where they speak, they, they speak in, basically they take stories and they, their language is purely I don't remember this episode. So you're ironically oh, illustrating man. the failure right. of this mode of communication. <laughs> the, it is exactly, that is, it is, <laughs> it is failed, but that's, you know, but essentially communicating through movie quotes would be what they're doing. They're just applying, they're just applying uh, phrases to communicate. This is like my um, fantasy of a good movie conversation that has, I've lost control of, and now it becomes like a Star Trek next generation <laughs> discussion. <laughs> hey man, that's how Charlie Kaufman made me feel with ballet at the end of the movie. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, I, I have one question to ask you that I was thinking about. So I, I was walking the dog with my daughter after we saw it and she was expressing which i totally get this perspective if 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 it's not about her and yet we're we are in her head for like all but maybe 10 or 15 minutes of the movie it sort of cheapens it to real to know that she is not a real person she's a creation of this older guy and so i was saying to try to argue against that, that, well, look, I mean, any character in a movie is a creation of somebody. 
you know, so like the fact that it's a creation of a character in the movie rather than Charlie Kaufman's creation, what difference does that make? And she's like, no, it's two different levels. And uh, this is why she hates any interpretation of Twin Peaks where like the first two seasons are a dream of just one character. I get that and I feel it. And at the same time, I think that these characters can be projections and they can be just as real, uh, even if they are projections of a character in the movie rather than the filmmaker or creator. And so the example I gave was The Princess Bride. Nobody bitches about The Princess Bride that actually those characters aren't real, even within the reality of the movie. They are part of a story that Peter Falk is reading to his, uh, his sick grandson. And yet you never feel like, oh, that cheapens it to know that they aren't real within the reality of the movie. So why should we feel that about characters who are, you know, parts of dreams or fantasies or delusions like in this case? You, you all, I have thoughts, but... Uh, well, so I guess I have two. The first is that it didn't bother me, although I can see how people would think in general that the it was all in somebody's head thing is cheap. Um to me, the most obvious difference between The Princess Bride and this is that The Princess Bride puts it up front. So it's like a framing device for the story. And all along, we're like, okay, well, this is a story within a story thing. I kind of know what that is. Here, it's like maybe you feel like you are you were kind of taking it seriously in a way. Like, oh, these are actual people who actually exist. And then you feel jerked around, right? It's like this kind of cheating almost. But the reason I don't feel that way about this is that it's very clear pretty early on that there's something weird happening that's not quite right. And so already I feel like it signals that like some of these people don't exist in the way that we think they do. And then it's kind of trying to figure out like in which way that is. I think that um, that this is sort of why I started off saying in, in some ways I viewed her as just as much uh, an aspect of him. Um, and I think that his... His making her a virologist, then a poet, then a landscape uh, artist and a physicist. I think those are all things that um, he would like to have been in his sort of wasted life as a janitor. And so I think that she is just as much a projection of his fantasy. It, it turns out as as the other, as the main guy um, because. It's he's in his own head and he's creating these characters and he he only has two things to work with all of the media that he's read and his own wishes thoughts and desires so the thoughts are getting confused at the beginning because they're both him he's just making himself a chick in you know and a dude right and he's he is both people and he's trying to flesh her out as a character and I think in doing so he is uh, creating a very real solid person that is just as real and a, as real a part of, of him as, uh, as the Jake character. I, I don't actually think that Jake is more real than uh, Lucy or whatever her name is. Um, I think it's only a result of us identifying the janitor with the Jake character, but I don't think there's any reason. So do yeah. you think she's the part of him that wants to kill himself? You know, when she like the I'm thinking of ending things is. Yeah, that's I hadn't thought of that. But I think that is right. The, the, the fact that he's putting those words in her mouth and that she's living this retrospective in a kind of in a dreamlike way. You know how in dreams you're like and and I was me. But then all of a sudden I was also, you know, Luke Skywalker. Um, I think that that's the kind of bleed that's going on in these characters um, because she really it really does turn from it's her. And then all of a sudden it's also him and like his parents. 
not just like she's meeting someone else's parents. She now she is interacting with his right, and, and he's not there. And yeah, and he's not yeah. there. Right. right, and there's that weird scene with a picture, like the childhood picture of him that then becomes the childhood yeah. picture of her. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. She's like, that's me. Yeah, that that is. Yeah. 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 She even says really at one point, people- I'm not sure where I end and you begin or something almost explicit like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I think that's all right. Yeah. Um, I do think also that he was trying to kind of explicitly make a point about the way that men value themselves by their partners, you know, desirability. I mean, she comes out and says that pretty much. Um, and the, and then the, the, the very the last song from. Oklahoma, I thought was kind of that explicitly as well. Like, you know, you're going to go out and get the girl to validate that you're like not a piece of shit, basically. Yeah, exactly. The fact that that she is critiquing his own like creation, like she is critiquing his creation of her as he is like, it's again, another thing where she has agency here, even if that agency ultimately comes from this separate aspect of his his psyche. There's a part, by the way, where he says to her, uh, in this real fake deep kind of, you know, I'm 14 and this is deep kind of way, maybe we're all programmed. And then she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> she, no, she does <laughs> like, like the mind blown, but sarcastically <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I really, it, it really is interesting the way that he is trying to create her and he's just not quite landed. So all of the aspects of her. Uh, of her he's like wait was she it's like somebody telling you about their fake canadian girlfriend they had over the summer and like well what does she do no no she works as a model wait i thought you said she was an accountant or whatever um and and i think that's perfectly illustrated in the clothing that he can't settle on what she was actually wearing unless she's just wearing different you know that that theory i had where it's like those are just different iterations and she's wearing different things through them i don't think you have to choose or even that there's an answer to that but um but yeah, no. This is exactly the kind of ambiguity that Charlie Kaufman is playing on. Yeah. To get people I, to, you know, it it would be dumb if there was an answer. Like, <laughs> I think in the book they f- uh, like they find his journals that have these stories that he's been writing, and it's very clear cut in a way. I think Charlie Kaufman didn't want in the uh, in the movie, it, and he definitely an died t- in the book. Yeah, in the book he definitely dies, and so you could see, like I could see Charlie Kaufman both. He's doing two things, right? He's both. I haven't read the book, obviously, but but I I was reading a little bit about the the similarities and differences um, between the book and the movie. He has, and I guess this is what adaptation is all about. He has to do a good job translating somebody else's work into a screenplay, and that can I can I can see why that is a task where that you would have some ambivalence toward. You're like, wait, is my job really just to take someone else's good ideas and make them into something slightly different? And I would really like to think that that turning the car on at the end of the credits was Charlie Kaufman saying, like, by the way, this is my story. Well, also, Oklahoma isn't at all part of the novel. You would have liked the novel better. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <so>. Less dancing. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't, I haven't read the book either, obviously. Um, I heard that it got sort of mixed reviews. Um, so I think having just like kind of read about the differences between the book and the movie and having read some like excerpts from the book, that the book sort of seems to hit you over the head with grimness and that the changes that Charlie Kaufman made sort of mitigate that a little bit. Like the Oklahoma stuff is just kind of weird and fun. 
and that he's not necessarily dead could be interpreted as, as less grim, although we've come up with a way that it's actually worse. But so. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. We didn't talk about the phone calls, but they're very strange, the phone calls. And they he keeps oh, saying like oh, a yeah. question has to be resolved. This question has to be resolved in your head, but you never find out what the question is. Maybe it's, do you, do you, do you take your own life or not? Yeah, I thought it was an, a super obvious nod to that Camus, like the fundamental question in all of philosophy is, should I commit suicide? Yeah, I thought it was like a clear nod to that. I didn't think um, of that, actually. Uh, yeah, there's... Is, is he, um, are the phone calls his voice? The janitor's voice, I believe. Yeah, they are the janitor's voice. Yeah, so, I believe. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, I'm uh, no less depressed than we started, but I think, uh, do you guys have anything more you want to say about this movie? No, just that I'm also quite depressed. And we hope we have depressed you. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm slightly less depressed, but that's because I think I haven't had as much time to think about it as yeah. You give it a day. <laughs> so I'll wait. I'll I'll wait for the 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 slow the slow roll. Of I'll depression. text you tomorrow. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna feel your body slowly <laughs> aging overnight, and then you're gonna get it. <laughs> but like a lot of a lot of um, really kind of sad movies about. The, the worst parts of life, there's something exhilarating when they get it right. You know, there is something exhilarating about somebody refl- accurate, accurately capturing something that is a, that is true to life. And so, like, I can't get too depressed when something is good in that way. Yeah, when when art is, is good, yes. And I will say that every once in a while, I look down at my hand and I realize oh, I'm fucking dude. old. Dude, <laughs> like, I'm it's glad old it's hand. not just me. I'm like, oh my, what? it's not... Yeah. That was like that yeah. was too close to yeah. home that yeah. scene. Yeah, no this like <laughs> feeling of like self-alienation where sometimes you look at some aspect of yourself and you're like I look old. This is fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great uh, note to end on. Yes, and I loved I, I really liked the movie. I don't know about loved because I haven't decided yet, but I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you Yoel as always. Uh, it's always a pleasure to lend my expertise to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two psychologists, two psychologists, four beers will pimp, uh, listen, listen to you all's podcast. It's, you know, I mean, Mickey's no Tamler. You know, but, he does what he can, but that's, <laughs> but that's a good thing. But that's a good thing. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. Join us next time. I'm very bad wizards. Just a very bad wizard.